Welcome to the Government Services Chapter of the American College of Emergency Physicians podcast. GSASEP represents emergency physicians who work in the federal government, including active duty military, National Guard, and military reserves, as well as the Veterans Administration, Indian Health Service, and other federal agencies. Our mission is advancing emergency care for America's heroes. In this podcast, we bring you lectures and conversations with leaders in federal emergency medicine to help you better care for your patients and lead your departments. The views expressed on this podcast are personal views and do not represent the views of the Department of Defense, any branch of the military, or the federal government, and they do not constitute endorsement of any product by any of these entities. Good day, everyone. I'm Lieutenant Colonel Shane Summers, and I'm the Deputy Director here at the Army Trauma Training Center in Miami, Florida. I'm here to talk to you today about the Forward Resuscitative Surgical Team, and more specifically, what I believe the emergency physician's role should be on those teams. A little bit of this talk might be Army-centric at times, but I assure you, for the most part, the concepts are broadly relevant to all of our sister services, including our Navy colleagues that are deployed on fleet surgical teams, and our Air Force colleagues on ground surgical teams and SOS-T. The purpose of this talk is to more effectively integrate emergency physicians into forward surgical teams. And I hope also that perhaps those of you who aren't currently assigned to an FRST might after this talk consider signing up to join one because I truly believe that emergency physicians provide maximum value to the FRST and could provide great impact to the quality of care that we provide for our wounded warriors downrange. So without further ado, I'm gonna pull up the slides. So in 2018, the US Army decided to convert all of its FSTs, forward surgical teams, to forward resuscitative surgical teams, which essentially meant adding two emergency physicians. And I would say a good move. Uh, it's maybe my biased opinion, but I think it's um, an upgrade. An emergency physician with their skill set is tailor made for an FRST. Uh, in 2019, I was offered the opportunity to come down and be a part of the Army Trauma Training Detachment, which is charged with providing all the pre deployment training for deploying FRSTs for the last 20 years um, and FSTs before we made the conversion. And I was the first emergency physician to actually be um, part of this unit. So it's been really cool working with the ER docs that are coming through here for the last 18 months on a one-to-one -one basis. And many of them weren't quite sure what their role was, um, you know, on the FRST. They'd say, you know, Shane, they, um, this is a surgical team. I'm not a surgeon. Where do I fit? I'm not sure. And to be honest with you, when I first showed up, I wasn't sure myself. But over the last 18 months, uh, in, in working with them and talking with the surgeons, um, I think I've... Uh, come to realize a much greater understanding of where the emergency physician fits on these teams. And I hope to share that with you today. So standard disclaimer, these are my own personal views and not the views of the Army. So the Army Trauma Training Center, I believe is the oldest MILSIP partnership in the Army. We've been around since September 10th, 2001, training uh, FSTs and FRSTs on a monthly basis. Uh, our detachment, is essentially a fully functioning FRST that's embedded in the trauma center and Jackson Health and University of Miami. So when the teams aren't here, I work over in the emergency department as fully credentialed faculty, keeping my own skills up, which has been very good for me. And when I work over at Ryder, when the teams are here, um, it's also you know, an eye-opening experience for me and good for my skill sustainment. Uh, the teams are here two weeks a month, and the first week they do didactics in the classroom with clinical uh, practice guideline reviews, simulation, um, skill stations, and they do two MASCAL exercises. But in week two, they're working clinically at Ryder, and I'm working with them. Um, they're actually seeing actual trauma patients and, and resuscitating them as a team, much like they would when they're deployed. And many of them have never trained together before. They come together at the last minute. Um, so it's been very good. Um, but I must admit, Ryder is a little bit old school in that it's completely surgeon run. It's separate from the emergency department. 
And when I first got here, they had no idea what to do with an emergency physician. And so I felt a little lost myself, like, where do I fit in? And so that's, that really sparred the impetus for this talk, because I'm sure some of my colleagues out there listening get assigned to an FST on day one, um, aren't sure where they fit. And I hope to share some lessons learned to help you guys better integrate. So that's my goal. Um, I'm going to give you 10 steps for success. If you say you get assigned to an FRST, what you can do on day one to really maximize your time in that unit. And then I'm going to lay out the skill set for the emergency position and show how it really kind of meshes well with the FRST mission essential task list and uh, hopefully inform others about what we do because it still seems like commanders and surgeons even in 2021, don't really understand what emergency physicians do on a regular basis and the kind of value we bring to the table. And then I wanna talk about some areas for improvement for us as a community, um, some things that we should focus on for our pre-deployment training so we can be ready to care for soldiers downrange. And uh, a lot of that, a lot of these recommendations I'm gonna make are, come from experience here of training teams on a monthly basis for the last 18 months. But I also did a poll on SurveyMonkey for all of our uh, emergency physician and surgeon rotators that have come through here since the conversion to the FRST and have deployed. And I asked them for you know, how it worked when they were deployed and um, having the emergency physician on the team. Was it a good thing, bad thing? What went well, what went wrong? And I'll share that data with you later. So the FRST is by doctrine, a 20 person element. It's a platoon size element. It's split into three sections. The admin supply section is the commander and the debt sergeant. And then the forward surgical section has eight officers and four enlisted. So it's two general surgeons, two orthopedic surgeons, two CRNAs, two ICU nurses, and then uh, OR techs and medics. And then the forward resuscitative section is kind of your lane to start by default, by doctrine. That is a six-person element, four officers, two enlisted. That's two ER docs, two ER nurses, and two combat medics. Um, and you're the leader of that section by doctrine. Now, keep in mind that these teams are very often splitting now into two groups of 10, so as to be more expeditionary and to get out further forward within the golden hour. And uh, so just keep in mind, the forward resuscitative section may become quickly a team of three running ATLS. So what is the mission of the FRST? Is to provide damage control resuscitation, damage control surgery. What does that mean? It's about plugging the holes in the ship, stopping the bleed, resuscitating them to uh, get them stable so they can get back to port. Keep the ship afloat, not necessarily repair the ship in its entirety, but keep it afloat so we can get back to port, which in the medical world for you would be the role three, getting them to the higher echelon of care. And emergency physicians are very good at that. Uh, resuscitation and stabilization and get them to the, high, the next level of care so they can get ongoing treatment. So what are my 10 steps for success? Step number one, get to know your trauma surgeon. This is Colonel Mark Buscelli. He is a trauma surgeon and one of the best guys I know. He has deployed eight times in nine years. Um, he joined the army after doing a civilian residency and civilian fellowship and had zero obligation to the army and decided to join anyways and take a pay cut so as to serve and care for our soldiers in harm's way. Uh, on day one, I got to know him. We hang out together. Uh, I trust him. He trusts me. We know each other's families. Um, we like hanging out and we talk about, we talk shop too. You know, we, we talk about how it's going to run in the, in, the, in the trauma resuscitation unit, you know, what our roles are going to be. Um, you know, we, we, we discuss the latest and greatest in trauma care, and I learned a ton from him. And I think he understands a lot more about the emergency medicine mindset now working with me. And I definitely understand more about the trauma surgeon perspective. And all of that will bleed down into good team dynamics, because when you have a small team of 20 and the two at the top are button heads, um, you know, it's a recipe for disaster for the team and can destroy morale and uh, maybe lead to worse patient outcomes. So get to know your trauma surgeon. You may be pleasantly surprised. 
Step number two, be an expert in damage control resuscitation. So this CPG, you should know inside and out, the clinical practice guideline for this. You are in effect as the ER doc, the damage control resuscitationist on the team. The surgeon may be in the operating room, knee deep in the abdomen, and don't really know what's going on in ATLS. Your job is to deliver them to the operating room, your casualty, warm, well-perfused, not coagulopathic, appropriately resuscitated, so the surgeon can do his or her job. And they might give you a warm hug if you deliver a, a casualty that's uh, appropriately resuscitated to them. So what does appropriate resuscitation mean? What are damage control resuscitation principles? It's all about mitigating this lethal trauma triad that we all know and talk about. But the emergency physician um, can interrupt this process on all sides of this triangle, which some people even call the lethal trauma diamond now, where they add hypocalcemia as the fourth rung. But what does this mean? It means if you have a, a trauma victim that's showing signs of hemorrhagic shock, you resuscitate with whole blood transfusion as your resuscitated fluid of choice. And if you don't have that, then you deliver component therapy in as close to one to one to one ratio as you can. It means uh, you do your primary and secondary survey and you, you identify all injuries. And then, you, then shortly after you cover them up and keep them warm and deliver them that, that blood warmed through the Belmont. And you deliver TXA uh, if you get a trauma victim with hemorrhagic shock within three hours of time of injury, so as to mitigate the coagulopathy and stabilize that fibrin plug. And you avoid crystalloid because that'll cause a dilutional coagulopathy and potentially worse acidosis. Um, you administer calcium as soon as you reach for those blood products so as to avoid the, hypo the hypocalcemia that occurs with transfusion of citrated blood products. So all of these are very, very important to reduce morbidity and mortality and trauma, and they're gonna fall to you. So be a damage control resuscitationist. Step number three, maintain proficiency in your individual critical task lists. So I think of someone, I think someone in 2018, when they were making decisions to convert to the FSTs to FRSTs, they probably looked at our uh, ICTLs for 62 Alpha and said, wow, that looks like that would fit perfectly on an FRST. That fits perfectly with the mission. And they would be right. These are our procedural ICTLs that are listed, um, at least on the Army side. And uh, all of them um, may be potentially useful downrange in a role two setting. And a lot of these, um, you are going to fall to you because the surgeon's going to be in the operating room. And so you should maintain proficiency with this. And that, I think the best way to do that is working regular clinical practice in a busy ED, either at a medicine or moonlighting or, uh, you know, MILSIP partnership, you know, but some of our EM colleagues through no fault of their own have been assigned to admin jobs in the army or, you know, uh, brigade, battalion, surgeon, job, staff officer, and they may be a little rusty in some of these things. So you need to have an honest self-assessment on where you're at. And part of ATTC's mission is to kind of get at that and get you some refresher on that. But, you know, just-in-time training is never as good as uh, regular skill sustainment in a, in a, in, in, through regular ED practice. So I would advise you to keep a log of these things. I think it's only a matter of time before commanders are coming for them. I think this is definitely the direction the military is going in terms of like measuring and tracking operational readiness. So maintain proficiency in these, keep a log, keep your number, try to stay clinically relevant in emergency medicine and you will do your team and your patients a great service downrange. I wanna put side by side the emergency medicine ICTLs with the 61 Juliet, which is the general surgeon ICTLs. And you can see there's a lot of overlap they're synergistic. Um, we play well off each other. Um, everything highlighted in yellow are procedures that both the emergency physician and the and or the surgeon could perform. And what's highlighted, there are some minor differences and there's some things that are specific for our skill set and our specialty, and those are highlighted in green. I don't think too many surgeons are super duper interested in performing medical resuscitations or treating ED patients, so that would fall to us. Likewise, I don't think too many of us are super interested in performing surgery or trained to do so. I know I'm not. So 
let the sur- let the surgeon do surgery. You can manage the medical stuff and you guys can meet in the middle in the ATLS section for the trauma resuscitations. And one of you could be the team lead and the other could do the procedures or vice versa. You just switch back and forth um, and be flexible, be adaptive. But it d- definitely makes sense to add another uh, another physician with this kind of skill set to an FRST. And I think that's why the conversion was made to kind of offload the surgeon a little bit. Step number four, know your clinical practice guidelines cold. So the CPGs are on the JTS website. Just Google JTS CPG. They are kind of the go-to for deployed medicine. They talk a lot about the nuances of military medicine and how we're different with our, uh, than our civilian counterparts. They break it down by priority. So this is just part of the list from the prioritized reading list for role two physicians. Um, so, and I picked out the ones that I thought were most relevant for emergency medicine. In the category one, they define as essential, know before you go. And these CPGs are very well written. They're evidence-based. Um, they're written by subject matter experts. Many of you on this call, I'm sure, have actually contributed to CPGs. They're continuously updated. Um, so I think if I had to pick five for you to really know cold, I think you should be familiar with all of them. And a lot of you already are just by nature of being an emergency medicine physician that practices regularly. But uh, I would pick those five that are highlighted in green before I deployed to know cold. I also would recommend that you get the deployed medicine app and download it to your phone and then download the uh, the CPGs that are listed in the prioritized reading list for roll two. And so you have them available for offline use while you're deployed. And during your downtime, you can pull a CPG and just review it with your team. Know your CPGs cold. Step five, showcase your unique skill set. So emergency physicians are very flexible, adaptable, creative, able to do more with less, able to task switch and handle, handle multiple casualties at once. All very useful skills to have for an FRST. We also have that spidey sense that we all know about where you walk in a room and a patient has atypical complaints and vague symptoms, poorly described, but something's just not sitting right with us. We think something's wrong in our gut. The hairs on the back of our neck stand up and we proceed with further workup and lo and behold, find horrible badness. So that kind of, that kind of spidey sense can be very, very useful in a setting where you don't have a lot of diagnostic capability and you have to pick out sick versus not sick and make evacuation decisions based on incomplete information and make treatment decisions based on incomplete information. And you're very good at that. You also have the ability to act quickly and definitively when you don't have all the diagnostics back. When you pick out somebody that's sick and and in need of resuscitation, but aren't quite hundred percent sure what's going on and your diagnostics aren't back, you act because you can't wait. And uh, you're very good at that. You're also, you're also very good at picking out the medical reasons for trauma that surgeon may not always think about. They may be just thinking about what traumatic injury someone has and whether they need the OR or not. So what are the doctrinal duties for the 62 Alpha as laid out in the Army Training Publication 4-2.25? Here they are listed. And this is just standard stuff. We know this. We do this on a regular basis. But I only list them here just to contrast them with what's listed in the same publication for the doctrinal duties for the surgeons. And interestingly, they each have only one line. The general surgeon's doctrinal duty is to perform surgery for patients that require surgery. (laughs) And uh, the orthopedic surgeon is pretty much the same. Perform surgery for patients with injuries of the musculoskeletal system. So just don't be too surprised if uh, your surgeon is not totally interested in helping out take care of patients that, uh, that don't need surgery. And don't be totally surprised if your orthopod is the same way. Uh, we know as emergency physicians, sometimes we actually have to, you know, have the orthopedist take a step back a little bit in the initial phases of a trauma resuscitation because they're so eager to get in there and look at the leg. But the patient's got non-compressible torso hemorrhage and showing signs of hemorrhagic shock, and we're trying to resuscitate them. So um, don't be too surprised if your orthopedic surgeon is 
not particularly interested in being a part of the ATLS piece. The other part of showcasing your skill set is for our fellowship trained folks out there that are listening, um, leverage those skills and talents and expertise. Um, many of these could be useful in a deployed environment. EMS, you guys are the TCCC experts and you're the experts in disaster medicine and mass cal events. Um, you're like the incident commanders. Um, you can do online and offline medical control and um, you're, you know, the latest and greatest in pre-hospital medicine, pre-hospital whole blood transfusion and hemostatic compressive devices. So use that and bring that to the team to help improve the team and improve the quality of care we provide for our patients downrange. And our toxicologists out there who my toxicology colleagues are some of the smartest people I know, use that skill set. We definitely can see snake bites downrange. We got a whole CPG dedicated to it. Um, we will see overdoses occasionally, um, all kinds of various bite stings and envenomations. PZM, I don't think anyone's better equipped to care for a critically, uh, critically injured or ill child in an FRST setting than a PZM physician. And then undersea medicine, we might see de decompression sickness, sports medicine. We'll, you'll probably see a variety of MSK injuries where that could be useful. And ultrasound, because FRSTs, Many of them now don't even have x-ray capability unless they're attached to a Charlie Med roll two. Uh, they don't have any x-ray capability and they definitely don't have a scanner. So ultrasound could be super useful. And ultrasound is not just about the fast exam while deployed. You know, a lot of what we see is disease, non-battle injury and medical complaints. And so you have a wide variety of applications to choose from, from the ASF guidelines um, that you're trained in. And I do want to share one story with you. Um, in Honduras on my humanitarian mission that I went on, um, on day one, I walked through the ICU and the ICU docs took me to this bed um, where there was this 18 year old girl laying there critically ill. And they, they told me they didn't know what was going on with her. And they asked if I could help. And she, they said that she was in septic shock and she came in febrile with multiple flu like symptoms. And this is pre COVID, but uh, she's been, there for two and a half weeks and requiring continuous vasopressors and they were unable to like wean her off of vasopressors despite adequate volume resuscitation and they told me that all of her blood cultures had come back negative and csf cultures um, they tested her for dengue which is common out there and that was negative and urine cultures negative and they had no idea what was going on so i i, I busted out the sonocyte nano that i brought with me and i just put a parasternal long axis view of her heart and she had a very large pericardial fusion that was circumferential with tamponade physiology. So she gets a pericardiocentesis and this is her three days later in the ICU, awake, alert, completely off pressers, um, smiling and happy. Um, and so this was a very profound case for me. I'll always remember and always remember her. Um, but you can make a huge difference um, downrange. And the, the, uh, the person that's probably best equipped to, you know, use the ultrasound to help make diagnoses like this is you. Step number six, cross-train with your team. So everybody on the team brings unique skills and different backgrounds. So learn from each other. Uh, the, the picture on the left is a rotating team from last year. The green cap is the Army surgeon, and the blue cap is the Army emergency physician. And I like this. They're working together to prime the Belmont. You know, because sometimes, all too often in busy medicines, we just call out orders and things just magically get done. And we kind of take it for granted, you know, the simple tasks that, you know, save lives, like running blood through a Belmont infuser. So I think we need to cross train on that. And I, was, I really appreciate these two taking the time to do so. And then in the middle is uh, me performing or teaching the medics how to do ultrasound guided IV and the nurses. Um, and I let them, you know, I was their guinea pig and um, they were you know, practicing on me and getting skilled with that. And I think that could help us out overall as a whole, um, you know, if we're unable to attain peripheral IV access in a timely manner in a trauma victim downrange, they could be forced multipliers for me. And I would teach them the FAST exam for the same reasons. And on the right, I really think we should train with our surgeons. We should cross train with our surgeons. Uh, they can learn from us and we can learn from them. 
So when I got here, I sat in on the asset course, which is the advanced surgical skills and exposure and trauma course. And it's very, very surgeon centric, but it was, uh, I think it was a good team building experience for, for me to get to know Bicelli and seeing the kind of awesome things he does. Like he's, uh, it's just, it's, it's, it's good to know what happens to your patient after they leave the DED. And I gained, I gained a definite appreciation for what he does in the operating room and the level of surgical skill that he has. And then he taught me a few things and, um, you know, it was a good refresher for anatomy. So, um, you should do that. And uh, whenever you get with your team, get with your general surgeon and, and, and cross train, same goes for the orthopedic surgeon. You know, I did a combat extremity lab, uh, with my orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Boomsma, and I don't think I'll ever perform an X fix, but, um, it was good to work with him and see what he does. And, you know, it was interesting. He was telling me that something I never thought of. He's like, you know, it's really, really challenging in an FRST environment to place a pin in a correct location for an X fix because we don't have fluoro capability. And then, so I started, uh, he's like, Hey, do you think that uh, maybe ultrasound could tell where the pin is? And I was like, I have no idea. So we just kind of played, we were bouncing ideas off each other and we just kind of played with it. And we, it turns out we were able to see the posterior pin, the, the pin coming through the posterior cortex and measure the distance um, with the ultrasound machine, something I'd never even thought of before. And he didn't know that you could use ultrasound to kind of look at, to see the adequacy of your fracture reduction. So cross train with the orthopod as well. And there's always like new fracture reduction techniques that they can teach you. They can always help you, you know, do a better mold with your plaster. So, and then my orthopod has no idea how to use an ultrasound. So or perform a fast exam. So I taught him that. So everyone kind of needs to know bottom line here. Um, they need to know the overall mission essential task list for the FRST, but they, they need to know each other's ICTLs kind of. Uh, so, you know, we can, you know, um, help out, you know, if stuff hits the fan and we're short on personnel, cross training is really important. So step number seven, take time to mentor your medics and everyone in the forward resuscitative surgical section, I would say. So the ICTL checklist for combat medics in the army is 65 lists or 65 tasks long. So it's much longer than ours, but all of them hundred percent are directly relevant to EM. You know, and sometimes we take these things for granted. What saves lives in the first five minutes of a trauma resuscitation is not ultrasound, but it's these things. It's slapping tourniquets on and getting two large bore IVs and starting blood and, and performing a needle D for tension pneumothorax. And those are um, things that are listed in the ICTL checklist for medics. So you have expertise in that. Train them, mentor them. They're eager for it. Take them under your wing. I did this in Iraq. I would do like daily little classes with my medics and um, we would do little workshops we, uh, with, their, uh, with their mission essential tasks. And, uh, and it worked out well because we actually got hit with a MASCAL and you know, when I got, I got hit with three litter patients that were surgical, one with a traumatic amputation. And before I could turn my head around, the medic had already slapped the tourniquet on and established two large bore IVs and reported back to me the vital signs. So many of them in the army, at least have, you know, been put in a motor pool or something like that and haven't really practiced these as much as they would like. And uh, we often, even in med sense, they just, they're like the vital sign collector, but they don't get to do these tasks. So train with them, break out, ask them to show them, show you your, their ICTL checklist and go over it with them and ask them if they feel comfortable and work with them. You won't be sorry. So take time to mentor your medics. Step number eight, maintain open lines of communication with the command and surgical cell. We often get stuck on our little silos um, where we think, you know, we can, we don't want to leave the ED. And the surgeons never want to come in the ED. No, we need to, we need to be able to move back and forth. Um, uh, you know, I even asked the surgeons this, you know, because sometimes it can feel like there's a force field around the ED or around the operating room, rather, that we don't want to go in there and ever like disturb the surgeon while they're operating. They're busy. And I asked the surgeons, they said, no, I would love to hear it from my ER doc. Put on a cap and a mask, walk into the OR and let me know what's going on out there um, so we can kind of talk about it and make sure that we all are on the same page. And communication is not a one-way street. It works both ways. They should be communicating with you. So demand that. Um, uh, commanders, um, 
need to be informed of your needs, uh, what you need to provide optimal care for your trauma patients in ATLS, what, if you're short on supply or what resources you need, what personnel you need, the training status of your people. And uh, the commander should be informing you of your mission and, and uh, um, what the next plans are and the next steps and your blood supply and all that stuff. So um, it's, it's a two-way street, maintain those open lines of communication. Step number nine, maximize your downtime. So right now, most of the deployments are slow. And I guess that's a good thing because, you know, that means our soldiers aren't getting injured as much. That's a great thing. But it also means there's going to be likely a lot of downtime until there isn't. I mean, there are teams that are still getting mass. A team that rotated through here last year took an eight-person mass count. Um, which will definitely overwhelm an FRST really, really quick. You know, but when there is downtime, make make good use of it. And I, if I was to pick one task to really practice during downtime, it would be the MassCal. Um, because you could practice all you want. And, and it, you know, I, I still think that no one's ever fully prepared. It ever goes perfect. Um, you know, these teams that rotate through here and do our MassCal exercise, they routinely flail on day one. And then day two, they tend to do better. I imagine the third or fourth iteration, uh, they would definitely iron out a lot of those kinks. So rehearse. This is us doing a cross-training exercise where the ATLS section set up the OR beds, the OR section, and the OR section set up the ATLS. Good cross-training exercise. I got to be honest with you, I didn't know how to set up an OR bed, but it's a good piece of information to know. And it was a good team-building exercise. Rehearse your ICTLs, and that doesn't have to be the latest and greatest in simulation equipment. That can be, um, you know, mentally rehearsing in your mind and visualizing the steps or watching a YouTube video. Review the CPGs, as I said before. Uh, I would say one a day is pretty reasonable. You can probably go through it in about 15, 20 minutes. Um, and teach your team uh, about the CPG and quiz your team. Um, and so, you know, it's really hard in the middle of a chaotic situation to go back and pull your CPG for reference. Take time to develop yourselves and improve yourselves as an officer and a clinician, you know, whether that be CME or reading some leadership books or doing something like Command and General Staff College, writing some papers, research. Um, take that time, um, you know, because when you get home and you get back in your full time job and your families have been missing you, sometimes it's hard to get that stuff knocked out. And take time for yourselves to take care of yourselves and your team. Uh, wellness is super important. These are stressful times being away from your families. Um, take time to exercise, eat right, sleep well, and look out for each other. If someone's looking down, then take care of them. Ask them if everything's okay. If you if you get stuck with a you know an incident where you unfortunately couldn't save someone, and uh, like you have a, a deceased soldier on your hands, which is horribly traumatic for everybody on the team, take time to debrief and talk about it. It'll go a long way with your team. Step number 10, get involved with the joint trauma system. The mission of the joint trauma system is to improve trauma readiness and outcomes through evidence-driven process improvement. It's a really noble effort, and a lot of great people are in this organization. Many of you, I'm sure, are active in this organization. Um, it's all about seeing what we did well, kind of. On the, uh, you know, when we get a, we, we follow patients all the way from the point of injury down back to CONUS and what went well and what could be improved. And then setting some performance improvement metrics uh, to see if we can meet those and then, and then collect the data and see um, if our interventions are working. And, uh, you know, we all kind of know the medicine piece, but a lot of it is the healthcare delivery piece. Are we actually getting the interventions we know work to the patient? So pick, an, pick a PI project on your team. It doesn't have to be something crazy. It can be like, does my team do a good job with hypothermia prevention? Or when we deliver component therapy, do we really truly get to that close to that one to one to one ratio? What percentage of the time does that happen? Um, do we, uh, are we always giving calcium, you know, with, after our first unit of blood, those kind of things. And you can get involved on the calls too. Uh, I would highly advise you do so weekly. The JTS meets at 0800 central time. And, uh, and there's lessons learned seminars that are quarterly. And then you could sit on a committee for the JTS where you talk, where you actually develop the CPGs and 
uh, talk about the latest and greatest equipment that we're going to field out there and um, all important stuff. So get involved with the JTS. Um, you, know, you can make a difference in your individual FRST, um, but you can make even a greater difference by being involving and being involved in uh, the Department of Defense Trauma Registry and being a part of the PI process for the whole system. So now I'm going to talk about operational readiness. So for these next few slides, I'm going to lay out the mission essential task list for the FRST. And then I'm going to give you a, uh, basically my own personal assessment of where I think we are as a community in that particular task, as far as our training status goes, and where I think we should train harder, some gaps in training, some areas for improvement. Um, just keep in mind, these are my own personal recommendations. These are not official recommendations from MedCOE or ATTC. This is based on my experience here for the last 18 months, seeing the ER docs and their level of experience that comes, you know, that come through here. Not everyone is created equal. Some have been working at busy EDs and are, you know, highly trained in all of these tasks that I'm about to mention. Whereas some may have been out of the loop for a little bit and, and need some extra dedicated training. So we we try to tailor it to their needs. Uh, but these are just basically overall broad-based assessments and may not necessarily apply to you. Um, in a certain task. All right, so without further ado, the nomenclature I'm going to use, the scoring rubric here is uh, in the bottom right. These proficiency ratings are listed in the Army Field Manual 7.0, and it's what line commanders use to determine, to like have a common language for where their, their soldiers are at in their specific individual critical tasks, where they think they're at. And, and, and the, the purpose is really just to train them up to fully trained before you go. And so for rapid hemorrhage control, we're trained in this. Um, you, you know, I would just say at a minimum, if you're getting ready to deploy, take a look at the TCCC guidelines just so you can be speaking common language to your combat medics. But really, I only put this task up here um, because I want you to train and mentor your combat medics and ensure that they're up to speed on these things. Um, this task, chest tube. In my experience, most, if not all, the emergency physicians that come through here have been trained in this task fully. Um, you know, you have to do 10 chest tubes just to graduate from residency. And then, um, you know, so I think, uh, so, you know, skill station refresher is really all that's needed for most 62 alphas that come through here. And that's what we do. We run them through a trauma sim man. And I watch them place the chest tube and I say, that looks good. And I sign them off and then they move on. I actually ask them to go to the next skill station over and start teaching their teammates how to do it and how to do it right. Task, perform the FAST exam. We're probably the best equipped in the unit to do this and do this well, do this in a timely manner and get great pictures. Um, you know, the surgeons aren't always as facile with this skill as they think they are. Um, so I, you know, when the, when the ER doctor comes here, we do our, uh, we do our, um, ultrasound lab on the first day that they're here. And I watch them perform a fast exam on a live human model. And usually the imagery is very good. And I just provide some, you know, a little bit of feedback maybe to, you know, just kind of, you know, clean it up a little bit, but not much. They're usually good to go. So I would say the emergency physicians should be teaching others in the unit to make us, uh, to make the rest of the unit force multiplier. All right, IO insertion. I would only, we're trained in this, but I would, I would give us a T minus only because I've seen some struggle a little bit with the proximal humerus IO. It's a little bit more challenging. Uh, most people are very, very familiar with the, the proximal tibia. Um, you know, but I think the proximal humerus IO is probably preferred for an adult trauma victim, uh, just because it delivers superior flow rates over the tibia IO, and because it's a line that's above the heart, um, I think we should be facile and at bare minimum proximal uh, humerus, proximal tibia, and distal tibia. Um, and so, what I do is I run them through the cadavers over at the Rosenstiel building here in Miami, and uh, they perform one of each, and I sign them off. And that's usually perfectly uh, sufficient for them to go downrange and be ready. Obtain a central line. I only put T minus here because I think we, as a community overall, 
most could use a little bit more experience with subclavians. I think in residencies, the go-to line has consistently been for the last you know, 15 years, ultrasound guided I, IJ. Um, and, and IJ is sometimes a challenge in a trauma victim that has a seat collar on and um, getting up near the head of the bed. Um, it, it, having the room to be able to do it is a little bit of a challenge and getting the sterile sheath out and having everything um, logistically nice and prepped is, is, is a challenge. So um, the, the surgeons at Ryder use the subclavian line a lot as kind of their go-to line for which they can't, if they can't get uh, peripheral IV access in a timely manner. And uh, so that's what I train our emergency physicians on when they get here. And a lot of them say they haven't done one in a long time. Um, uh, Blue Phantom model, I think is fine, but ideally I like to get them on the patients uh, who need it. Um, like we, we see a lot of penetrating trauma here at Ryder and a fair number of patients get thoracotomies. And so if they're getting a resuscitated thoracotomy, I tell the ER doc, like that's, they're definitely getting a right-sided chest tube and at Ryder, they're going to get a right-sided subclavian line as well while the, the, the surgeon is working on the, uh, the left anterior lateral thoracotomy. So uh, practice on the subclavian line. I think it's a very good trauma line and it's good because you can do it blind with, you know, landmark technique relatively safely, which is good in case your ultrasound device ever goes out. Um, and also our surgeons don't really like the femoral line too much in patients that have potential for shock from abdominal hemorrhage. Um, they like to have a, a, a line above the diaphragm and above the heart. So they go with subclavian. So practice. Perform intubation. We're trained in this. You have to do 35 just to graduate residency. Although there have been some folks that have not intubated uh, patients in a couple of years that come through. Um, you know, even myself, when I was the residency director at BAMC, like the, the residents did all the intubations. So um, I would always try to get to the uh, uh, you know, live, uh, the uh, cadaver lab at Spring Branch in Bulverde to try to, you know, practice uh, intubation on a cadaver. And I think that was helpful. Um, but those models, those little mannequins, I don't think are ideal for refresher training just because they're super easy to intubate. And nothing can really simulate the, the you know, grossly bloody trauma airway for which you may have to intubate downrange. So uh, I would recommend that if you've been out of practice and haven't intubated in a while, you can practice on some mannequins, but don't make it 100% of your intubations on mannequins. Uh, try to rotate with us at ATTC or... Um, maybe even rotate in the operating room. Sometimes we send rotators up to the operating room to do some elective cases if they haven't intubated in a while. We encourage them to use both DL and VL because I have found a lot of our graduating residents, they all they ever used was VL. And uh, again, that, that you know, your battery could go out on your video laryngoscope downrange or may not be available. So you have to be fast out with both. Performer Crike. I say we're practiced on this and that's only because most everyone I talk to that's come through here has never done one in their lives. <laughs> so they've done it on uh, you know, you have to have three to graduate, but they hundred percent of those can be simulated. So they've all done it on, uh, you know, uh, you know, either a mannequin or a cadaver, but uh, it's just not the same because, you know, you want to use, you want to use live tissue because live tissue bleeds and, and uh, you know, so that's the, the closest you're going to get to probably simulating it. It's a porcine model is actually a pretty good model for this. We use this during our mascal exercise. Um, and so um, I would recommend you train on live tissue if possible. And if you haven't done one in a while, maybe review some videos. And then uh, I like the bougie guided crike as a technique. You only need three pieces of equipment. And I like to keep it simple in chaotic, crazy situations of a can't intubate, can't ventilate situation. I don't like to, I like to pull the trigger and just grab the equipment and have it ready to go um, without busting out this complicated kit. Um, so uh, I think I can intubate anybody pretty quickly with those three pieces of equipment. So escarotomy, P minus, if, if we're gonna be honest with ourselves, most people are marginally practiced in this task and that's fine. We have surgeons on our team and I think that that's in their wheelhouse and they should do it. But that being said, we send the emergency physicians to the asset course and they do these kind of things with the, uh, with the surgeons present cross-training just in case of emergency. Same goes for fasciotomy. FRSTs in the Army have uh, general surgeons and orthopedic surgeons, so they should be the default go-to to do this kind of thing. Um, 
there is a lower threshold to perform fasciotomy in a role two setting because these patients are high risk for compartment syndrome and the logistical issues of, you know, you know, flying them back, you would hate for them to get to the role three and they've got a cross muscle because you failed to act. Um, definitely if they get a vascular shunt, they're going to get a prophylactic fasciotomy if they have high risk mechanism or they're very difficult to evaluate because they're, they have bad mechanism and they're intubated and sedated and, you know, they got a tip fib fracture or something like that. Um, they're probably going to get a prophylactic fasciotomy. I think the, uh, I think the surgeon should do this, but you should be trained in an asset course if possible um, in case you need to do it in an emergency. Um, particularly, I would think maybe at roll one, you might have to do it. Okay, Reboa. So I had to give a shout out to Reagan Lyon, uh, who's probably on this call. Uh, she published her experience in Syria um, in the journal Trauma Acute Care Surgery. Um, they took care of a ton of traumas during the offensive against ISIS, probably more traumas than I took care of in my life. This is her um, part of her special operations surgical team. I think they did great things out there and I was just really impressed after reading this report of some of the amazing things that they did. Um, they're kind of the proof of concept, I think, for why Reboa could be potentially useful for our traumatically injured casualties downrange when, we when they present to a role two facility. Uh, they placed 20 Reboa catheters. Many of them I know were placed by the emergency physician. Um, and all patients survived to the next echelon of care. And, you know, we don't have long-term follow-up data on them because a lot of them were, uh, you know, serum defense forces. It's my understanding. But this is at least a good proof of concept. The reason why it's important for the emergency physician to learn the skill is because Dr. Northern, the gentleman in the middle, who's the surgeon, can only take one person on the table at a time. And it's my understanding that ATLS had multiple critically injured casualties that were with hemorrhagic shock, uh, bleeding below the diaphragm um, that could be temporized, but um, until they could get to the OR table until Dr. Northern could get them on the table. And ATLS section was responsible for doing that. And I think that that's why I think this Reboa task will fall to the emergency physician because if the surgeon is present and you only have one casualty then and they're in hemorrhagic shock, they'll just go to the OR. But what happens when you get multiple casualties? Um, so I, I think it's important to uh, have this tool in our arm in our armamentarium. Our task proficiency, I put us generally speaking as marginally practice from what I've seen. Um, so I think we should undergo formal training virtually in all instances um, before we go down range. And that could be the best course, which is the uh, the put on by the American College of Surgeons, or we do Reboa training here or STAR-C, which is BAMC's pre-deployment FRST training platform. All fine, I think. Um, this is not something that really should be taught with didactics. It should be a hands-on experience with a high-fidelity sim simulator, like the Prytime simulator or something like that, or maybe a live, or, uh, I'm sorry, a profuse cadaver or something like that might be the next best option. Um, but it's definitely something we should practice and could be potentially useful. Perform lateral canthotomy. Um, I would put us a practice in this task, um, just because uh, most people actually haven't done one on a human patient. Um, you know, we've, we've, we've read about it. We've watched videos. We trained in residency. Um, we may have done it on live tissue, but, uh, very few patients. It's not, it's not all that common for a patient to have an orbital compartment syndrome from what I see. Um, that being said, you do need to diagnose this condition at a role two and, and perform this procedure. Otherwise, they could lose their eyesight before they get to the role three. So I, uh, I, during the asset course, the emergency physicians here uh, perform lateral cant on a cadaver. And we also try to get them to do it during the uh, mass cal exercise with live tissue on porcine model by injecting some saline behind the eye, simulating a retrobulbar hematoma. Resuscitated thoracotomy, uh, you've got a general surgeon there. I, I, I think this is best performed by this, the general surgeon. If you, if, if you didn't have a surgeon present, you probably should never perform a resuscitated thoracotomy. There's no point. And if you have a surgeon present, why not let them do it? Or, and you can, be assist, you can assist. So um, I guess maybe if they're in the operating room, and you got to do it. It'd be important to it, it, maybe you can like relieve that pericardial tamponade, um, and then they can get them. Uh, they can get to the operating room right after that, uh, and your surgeons, you know, right down the hall. 
it's a good skill to have. We do train in this, you know, in the residencies, I'm sure on live tissue is a good model, like porcine model. Um, when the rotators come through here, I have them, uh, I have their, their general surgeon walk the ER doc through the procedure on live tissue. Uh, and it, that tends to work out pretty well as far as a good refresher training. Perform burr hole craniotomy. So per the CPGs, there have been 36 cranial procedures performed by non-neurosurgeons at a Rule 2 facility since OIF and OEF began. Um, so it's a rare event, but not a never event. And this is, again, something where the patient may decompensate and, be, and, and have irreversible brain injury and death, seizure coma death, before they even make it to the Rule 3. So you may have, you have to be prepared to do this for cerebral herniation syndromes when you can't get them to the Rule 3 in a timely manner and you have no neurosurgeon support. Uh, this is a procedure I think is best left for the, uh, the general surgeon. They have often done craniotomies in residency with neurosurgeons. They train on it in the asset course. Um, but I do recommend cross-training with them during asset. Procedural sedation and analgesia. <clears throat> um, we're trained in this. We have to do 15 procedural sedations just to graduate. And then we, many of us continue to continue to use this in our regular practice. We're very good at treating pain and, uh, and, and very well versed, uh, very uh, well versed in, you know, um, uh, taking care of adverse events that may or may not occur with, uh, uh, with procedural sedation as far as uh, airway maneuvers and techniques. Um, so you and the CRNA are going to share this task. And I would say that, you know, you probably just need to take a peek at the CPG, uh, these two CPGs that I have listed here um, and call it a day. Perform nerve blocks. This is something where I think a training gap uh, exists. And it's variable. Some, some people have uh, come through here, have completed an ultrasound fellowship, and they're pretty high speed with this. And some have never done it in their life, which is why I have the variable rating here. But I think that this is something that we should uh, really start to think about uh, training um, during our pre-deployment platforms, like at ATTC or STAR-C, um, just because it has a potential to reduce the opioid analgesia requirements for our soldiers, particularly if we're in a prolonged field care situation, we've got a fracture or or mangled extremity. And we're already very skilled with ultrasound itself. So it's really just about kind of learning the anatomy. Um, and, uh, you know, so if I was to start somewhere with how we should get at training, meeting this training requirement, I would probably look at the New York uh, School of uh, Regional Anesthesia. They have some very good online modules that you can do. But ideally, in a perfect world, this is best get uh, best achieved by rotating on it you know, regional anesthesia service, um, and, uh, pr actually performing nerve blocks on patients. Um, I did get the opportunity to do this in Honduras. Um, and my anesthesia resident, um, who was rotating with, who actually flew out there with me, was helping me in the OR perform these nerve blocks. And it was, it was awesome. I learned a lot and, uh, I, I definitely think it could be beneficial for our soldiers downrange. Reducing fractures and dislocations. I only give us a T minus because, um, you know, even in my experience at BAMC, like oftentimes we would just call the orthopedist to reduce the fractures rather than reducing it ourselves. So sometimes these residency programs and busy med sends, we have every specialty known to man, so we just call them. Uh, I think some of the community docs are better at this than others. Um, you know, but again, you have an orthopedic surgeon there, so why not use them? Um, and then you could perform the procedural sedation piece. Run a code. This is us. This is our wheelhouse. We're trained in this. If you've been in regular clinical practice, still remember the Kuwaiti bus driver that I took care of in Iraq that came in with a STEMI and a B-fib arrest. These things happen downrange. Um, he got shocked and got a Tenecta place and all the other things and did quite well. So it was a really cool case for me. I still remember it to this day. Um, we will take care of these codes. I don't think we need extra ACLS training. Just by nature of being board certified and being in practice, we should be good to go here. But just be prepared to take care of them because, um, you know, sometimes downrange, we see these DOD civilians and contractors and local nationals that have significant comorbid conditions. Management of acute illnesses. I want to read... Uh, a quote from my survey that I sent out. This is from an emergency physician currently deployed. 
Quote, currently deployed to CENTCOM with an FRST. No surgeries done in the last four months. Have been required to manage COVID outbreak, abdominal pain, chest pain, syncope, renal colic, and numerous infectious disease complaints. So it sounds like their FRST became an emergency department. So just be prepared for that. And you are trained to do that. All right. Speaking of acute illnesses, who runs a sick call? Well, our view of Utopia would be that there is no sick call, but the reality of the situation is soldiers on the FOB are going to present to you with minor complaints seeking your help. Um, I think in a perfect world, empower your medics to run the sick call because um, you're really there. We're emergency physicians and you know, you're damage control resuscitationists, right? You're there to take care of the, and be prepared for the next mass cal event that comes in and perform far forward surgery. Um, but so empower your medics to run the sick call. There's this manual called ADTMC, Algorithm Directed Troop Medical Care, where they can run through a flow sheet and it, uh, based on chief complaint and they can pick out the red flags and call you if they need you. And corpsmen too, they're excellent at this. Um, you know, but if your commander really wants the physicians to kind of take lead on that, you know, maybe, just maybe, <laughs> you can get the orthopod to see the musculoskeletal complaints and uh, the surgeon sees the undifferentiated abdominal complaint complaints. Um, uh, abdominal pain complaints, but uh, I don't know. Good luck with that. You'll, you guys are going to have to work that out uh, as a team ahead of time. So now finally I'll close with my survey. So here's the results. So I polled all the emergency physicians and surgeons who attended ATTC in the last 18 months. And I got 27 respondents back, which is about a 50% response rate, 5 uh, 17 emergency physicians, 10 surgeons the vast majority of whom had deployed and were active component. What are the results? Question number one, rate your level of agreement with this statement. Emergency physicians are a valuable addition to the FRST. And encouragingly, 90% uh, of surgeons said strongly, either strongly agreed or agreed, with the majority saying they strongly agreed. And, uh, and, and emergency physicians also felt valued on the team. So this is encouraging data. You know, we did get one disagreement, one naysayer, one hater. Uh, I guess uh, I, I, I never really thought that we would get 100%, uh, you, know, uh, you know, gold star happiness from our surgeons. Um, but uh, I think 90% is pretty good and something we should be, um, you know, excited about moving forward if we ever deployed on one of these teams. All right, I asked them about the working relationship between, I asked the, um, the, the surgeon, how you feel about working with your emergency physician and vice versa. And uh, again, same, same results, essentially um, 90% either agreed or strongly agreed that they worked well um, with the surgeons. I'm sorry, 90% of surgeons either strongly agreed or agreed that they worked very well and had a good working relationship with their ER doc. So that's excellent news. And uh, the ER docs like the surgeons too. Here's some comments from the surgeon um, from that same question. I'll let you read those. They even acknowledged that the emergency medicine physician had far more knowledge and experience with um, dealing with undifferentiated complaints. And they, they acknowledged the synergy that could potentially exist and that how the, we're all working together here to maximize patient care. I asked uh, both groups of physicians who they thought should be the trauma team leader. So uh, this has kind of been a little bit of point of contention, you know, trying to figure out, you know, because at BAMSI, like the emergency physicians often will run the trauma and a certain kind of, kind of um, stands back just to, and steps in if the patient needs surgery. Um, so you have two physicians that are perfectly capable of being the trauma team lead on the same team. How's that dynamic going to work? And I pulled the teams. Uh, this is what I got. So you can see there's overwhelming consensus that when the surgeon is not around, like say they're in the OR, that the emergency physician should be the team leader for, you know, these ATLS trauma resuscitations. That makes sense. Now, there was a little bit of contention when it came to when the surgeon is present. Um, so, but still, the majority of folks, both emergency physicians and surgeons, think when the surgeon is present, 
that they should be the team lead, the surgeon should be the team lead, and the emergency physician should do the primary secondary survey, the FAST exam, and the critical procedures. And you know, some some of the surgeons actually thought that you know, the ER can be the team lead for all of them, and I'll just take them if they need to go to the OR. But uh, you know, so this is this is something you would need to hammer out ahead of time and have to open an honest discussion with your surgeon about. But you know, I think this is um, this is kind of cool how like um, they feel very comfortable with us, you know, performing being a team lead when they're not around, and even being a team lead when they are around, and they feel very comfortable with us. Uh, performing the very important trauma survey and the, the ultrasound exam and the procedures. So sometimes that can be even more fun. They can be the team lead and we get to play a little bit. So the summary of these, this trauma team lead question from the comments, essentially what I'm seeing here from these teams that deployed in the last 18 months is that when the surgeon's not around, the 62 alpha should be the team lead and perform the survey. When the surgeon is around, it depends on the situation. So if there's a mass cal event, it's really going to be like a divide and conquer type thing. Surgeon's going to run one bed, ER is going to run another. But if there's only one casualty, the default probably is going to be the surgeon serve as a team lead and the 62 alpha performs the, the, the primary and secondary, the ultrasound and the procedures. Now they may need to swap for procedures, you know, so whenever someone zooms in to do a procedure, they lose focus of the, the entire room and visibility on the overall 50,000 foot view of the trauma resuscitation. So maybe the emergency physician would need to zoom out and take over as team lead in that instance and vice versa. So you got to be flexible and adaptable. You got to communicate because um, butting heads in the middle of a trauma resuscitation, as I said before, is um, just think go very, very wrong when that happens. So I asked about procedures and you can see here the surgeon, I asked the surgeon what procedures they're comfortable with the emergency physician performing. And I asked the emergency physician what procedures they're comfortable performing just to see if there was a disconnect. And it looks like the surgeon is very comfortable, at least on these teams polled with their emergency physician performing all of the resuscitated procedures that you would think, uh, airway management, chest tubes, crikes, fast exam, central lines, art lines, uh, all that stuff, uh, and being the team lead. And even Reboa 70% of the time which I thought might be a little lower actually. So, um, but uh, you know, there was a little disconnect in certain things. And when I, when I define disconnect as being that the ER doc says they can do it and the surgeon says, no, you can't, those procedures were few and far between, but really they, they came down to, you know, like a burr hole, actually a burr hole, the ER, doc, most ER docs weren't even comfortable doing that. Um, it came down to, like uh, fasciotomies and escarotomies. Some of the ER docs thought they could do it, but the surgeons were like, not so fast. Um, there's a little bit of disconnect on lateral canth. 95% of ER docs think they can do it only, and 70% of surgeons think the ER docs can do it. So bottom line here, hash this out, talk about it, let them know what procedures you've done and what you're comfortable in performing and who's going to do what procedure in what situation. And my final question on the survey was, who's going to be, are you interested in commanding? And um, shock of the century here. Um, we have zero yeses from the surgeons. No surgeon pulled was interested in, in commanding an FRST. Um, and so I, I view that as a great leadership opportunity for you guys. Um, I, th I think the teams that rotate through here where they have a physician leader, and we've had a couple that have had an emergency physician leader, and they tend to be more seasoned. Um, they work better as a team. Uh, they tend to be more clinically up to date. Um, and they make smarter decisions because they know the clinical aspect of it. So um, take that leadership opportunity, that void in leadership, and step up as our teams need it and our soldiers need it. So in summary, um, the 62 Alpha brings a lot of value to the FRST. You're by doctrine the leader of the forward resuscitative section, but you, you have a broad skill set that, that can bring so much more to the team. Um, Cross-train with each other and get to know each other. Um, Start with a 61 Juliet, your trauma surgeon. That strong working relationship is absolutely vital. Maintain proficiency in your ICTLs. Know your CPG's cold and rehearse during your downtime. Rehearse, 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 in particular the MASCAL. Um, and uh, before you go, make sure you address any potential training gaps that may exist. Um, again, the best way to get at your ICTLs is skill sustainment at a busy ED. So, and talk to your commanders. If you're not stationed at one of those places, talk to your commanders about moonlighting. 
and don't go moonlight in some like low volume area where you only see a couple patients. Um, try to work in some place that's busy so you can keep those skills up. It really matters when you get downrange. So for those of you out there that are deployed or getting ready to deploy, thank you for your service. Um, just remember what's waiting for you when you get home. Uh, I will share my experience when I got home from my third deployment, uh, waking my little girl up at seven in the morning. Good morning. Good morning. All right, this concludes my talk. Um, I hope all is well with you. Stay safe. Hope to see you soon. Thanks for listening. GSASEP is proud to be the premier continuing medical education source for military and federal emergency physicians. To purchase CME for the episode you just listened to, please click on the link in the show notes. The Government Services Chapter of the American College of Emergency Physicians promotes quality emergency care and enhances the development of emergency physicians who serve our nation from training through retirement. Learn more about our chapter at www.gsacep.org.